Aloha. Welcome to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for joining me on another episode. We've got a little bit of a island theme, a little Hawaiian theme uh, here today. We're talking to an individual down there about the Hawaiian trail running culture, his journey into trail running, because it's it's a hell of a conversation. It uh, His near-death experience pretty much led him to where he is in life right now and and why he runs trails, why he does what he does. And it's a really great story. And ever since I read that article about him in Trail Runner Magazine, I've been really looking forward to this conversation to really get a little bit more insight uh, on what that experience taught him about himself. So I hope you guys enjoy it just as much as I did. Thank you again for listening and welcome to The Trail Life. Wookie Kim. I meant to look up your your race series. What are some of your your races are all over the place or so it's the endurance race series. So endurance race series.com. And we do uh, Colorado and San Diego, Colorado is uh, summertime. So April to September, and then we do San Diego County, uh, October to March. So it's a it. pretty much a full, full year of events. We do, it, it pretty much averages out to one event per month. Right, um, right. Everything. So, and we got, we, we throw in most of the stuff that we do is half marathon down to the 5k. And then we'll throw in like a 50k. I got 150k here in San Diego, 150k in Colorado as a one-off event. I do a 24 hour race here in San Diego County as well. So most of it is, we have a very broad spectrum of, uh, trail running levels in our races, mm-hmm. but I learned really early on that our races sit in this really sweet, good, sweet spot of new or very novice trail trail runners that are looking to get more and more into trail running. So I we see. get a lot of, we get a lot of people that will kind of start with the 10 K you know, options and move mm-hmm. themselves up to half marathon, maybe the year or two afterwards. And then they're wanting to get into ultras. And and so it kind of just, it's become kind of a nice launching pad, I think for a lot of people to get used to running trails. Um, yeah, no, that's great. And so it's, we've kind of just always sat there and even, even with the growth of the ultra race, right. The growth of more on 100 miles and 200 miles that are now popping up more and more, it's, it's still one of those things where I'm in that zone of people still need to have the shorter races to train on and to get used to running the trails. And that's, that's kind of where we've always, you know, kind of held our position on and it's really helped us out as a, as a brand um, with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with the North Face endurance challenge series? I am. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've talked to those guys a couple times over the years. Um, and they do a lot of the same stuff. I feel like there is a sim- they sat in a similar sort of position where they were a lot of my ultra runner friends, they did their first ultras at the North Face series because you know every event has you know 5k all the way up to 50 mile and and friends go out for that weekend and see and get inspired to go up, you know, one 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 distance level or whatever. So 
yeah, the bummer of that series died, but yeah, it's it's a it's a lot like that. I I, I don't know. I, I in the ideal world, and if I had if there was ten other of myself, I would probably I would probably extend uh, into different areas of the country. I you know I'm originally from the Midwest, so I'd love to have something in the Midwest like this, and I'd love to would love to have something out in Arizona or Utah or wherever. But it's like with Colorado and San Diego is as busy as they are with the races, it's just kind of, it's too hard to branch out into different locations, which is totally fine. Like I, I am very happy in the fact that I get to spend my summers in Colorado and I get to spend my, my, you know, I live full-time in San Diego, so it's not bad. It's, I have a, oh, okay. a really good living situation <laughs> when it comes yeah, to yeah. And, and where I get to travel to. So like I said, I, I, I really can't complain and, and both, both trail communities are really good as well. Like they're <laughs> very, very much similar, but very much different. And that's what I really like about it too, is the fact that I, I can experience two different communities that share the same goal. It's just, you know, they, mm-hmm. they train and they run on different types of trails and it's, it's really cool that, that way. So yeah, the one thing that I, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about. First of all, I, I, I kind of found out about you through Trailrunner Mag and your, <laughs> the article was, that was written about you there. So yeah. I, I, de- I definitely have a lot of questions about that, <laughs> but I want to talk, since we're talking about trail running communities now, I want to talk to you about the Hawaiian trail running culture and sure, sure. trail running there. Like, I, and I will say that we go, my wife and I go down to Maui every year uh, for vacation. And <laughs> so and we got married down there. So we, we've, we try and take, you know, friends and you know, other family members down to Maui with us or different parts of Hawaii when we go. So it's, so Hawaii really it has a really special place in my heart. And I love mm-hmm. the fact that you're so involved with the community down there. And I, I would love the listeners to kind of hear the culture of Hawaiian trail running. Right. Mm-hmm. And what, cause I, I think trail running is always, is a great as a community that's very inclusive and supportive and yeah. you know, it's very welcoming. Right. But, I, and I think in, in my knowledge, Hawaii almost takes it to a, a, no, a new level as far as the support aspect mm-hmm. of it. Right. And, and I think it's important for people to kind of hear that, but I also, well, I saw on your Instagram too, just, just a little bit ago that you just did Haleakala. Was that mm-hmm. just, was that recently or is that, was that videoed and then just, just released? No, no, that, uh, well, let's see which, which, uh, I'm assuming it's my video. Oh yeah. I, I did put together yeah, a video. It was, it, yeah. was the, it was the Cedar it, Summit. Yeah. It, it was, it was a month ago. It was, okay. uh, you know, it was, it was fairly, you know, May 9th, I think is when we did it. So okay. right so, before I went to Korea. So um, let's, let's talk about that first, because I, I've, I've hiked Haleakala before. I've never done it from starting at the sea and going all the way to the top, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> I think it's, that was an experience. Yeah. That, and if, for people who don't know, Haleakala is, is the highest point in, in Hawaii. It's what, 10, 11,000 feet total. It's uh, just over 10,000 feet. It's actually yeah. not the highest point. In Hawaii, it's the highest point on Maui, though. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Ma- I'm That's what Mauna, I'm Mauna Kea, both Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa are are taller. Um, Mauna Kea is almost a 14er. It's 13, okay. 800 or something. And I, I've actually done, so, you know, I've actually done Mauna Kea Cetus Summit, which is oh, wow. zero to, you know, 13,800, 13,900. 
uh, over 42 miles. So that, that one was way, way more challenging, but challenging in different ways. Challenging so in different ways. It kind of explain what you get the, like, okay, so we're talking about the three tallest peaks in, in Hawaii first. Let's, let's do that. So what, from a, from that perspective, what would a trip, what would a trail runner or a new, or somebody who's going down to visit, if they want to go out and do that, what are they experiencing out on those type of trails? Like, because those are all volcanoes and there's volcanic situations out there, like how the, like a lot of the landscape is volcano, but you've also got a lot of plant plant life out there too. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, but believe it or not, well, I mean, I guess when you start from the sea, from sea level, you, it really means you're experiencing the whole range of terrain and climates and, you know, whatever zones of, of, of the land. And that's part of what makes the Sea to Summit experience so special. Um, when we did the Haleakala Sea to Summit, Oh, and so one one big difference between the Haleakala Sea to Summit that I did and the Mauna Kea Sea to Summit is that for Mauna Kea, we we ran only on the road, you know, to the uh, you know to the extent possible. Versus Haleakala, we only ran on trails, mm-hmm. and the start of the Haleakala Sea to Summit from Kaupo Gap is a really really remote and not used trail. And it was the most overgrown trail I've ever been in. There was grass that was, you know, eight feet tall. And as we were pushing our way through it, I I couldn't even see the sky. It was, it was like dark because I was, you know, encapsulated in this tall grass and the, the level of thorns, you know, there were, I couldn't, I'd never experienced the (laughs) diversity of sharp plants that um, I was going through. They were, you know, they were thorns with little hooks on them. They were, it was grass with uh, the sort of like, um, I don't want to call them feathers, but they got, they got these things that stick into your skin there. I mean, it was just, you know, Kiave thorns, which are basically just like giant toothpicks uh, on, on branches. Mm. I mean, it was, it was really, really intense. And there was a, uh, half mile section that took us almost an hour to go, uh, just because it, we got lost and uh, we got stuck in a thicket of thorns and had to backtrack and find a new new path, new path around. And it was pouring rain, and you know, so <laughs> so that was the experience for the first two hours. And I was thinking, oh my god, we made a mistake. We're not. So our plan actually was to do see to summit and and back down over. Um, the other side down Skyline Trail on the southwest side of the summit of Haleakala down into Kula, which is upcountry Maui. So basically starting on the southeast side of, of Maui, running up to Haleakala and then running sort of northwest back down the, into um, the upcountry. That was a 36 mile route. We nixed that plan when we hit the summit right around sunset. We, you know, several hours behind yeah. schedule and feeling utterly, utterly exhausted. So, um, but yeah, it was a really special experience. And um, that really difficult portion only lasts for a couple of miles. And then you get into the national park boundary and um, there's a lot of still, it's an overgrown trail that's, you know, um, it's easy to follow, but it's very overgrown and you can't see the trail. Um, that part was fine because at that point there were fewer thorny objects. 
<laughs> I mean, our, our legs were just so slashed up from, I felt like, it, it, you know, now I understand why like the Barclays marathon is so challenging because you, you know, you have to deal with all the navigation and yeah. um, it felt like a mini Barclays for like half a mile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, so, very mini Barclays. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but okay. And then we get into the natural park boundary and then we get into the crater and that's when the landscape completely changes. And it's this uh, otherworldly, you know, it's like you're on the surface of the moon um, with yeah a kaleidoscope of colors in the lava rock. And I, I, it's just one of, and, and by the way, I actually proposed to my wife at the summit of Haleakala on sliding sands trail. Oh. And we actually got married on Maui as well. And so Haleakala, the crater, you know, also is a very special place to me and to us. And so it's just amazing whenever we get the opportunity to go out there and see it from another perspective and, you know, I've done some fast packing in there. There are some really beautiful uh, camping spots, cabins and, you know, tent camping spots uh, throughout. And so, and even there, the east side of the crater, it's one of the wettest parts of the state. It gets some of the, the highest rainfall in the state. And the west side, as you get closer to the summit, it's super dry and yeah, super yeah. sunny. And yeah, I mean, so we were, we were absolutely drenched for the first four or five hours and then once we got into the crater, uh, all the rain went away and uh, the sun was out and it was just a perfect, perfect day. And, and then we made the summit push. So, so it was just really fantastic, um, fantastic experience. Yeah, I, I definitely would encourage anybody who's going to visit Maui, if you get an opportunity to go and at least experience a, a small section of those trails. I mean, there's there's a lot of easy tourist access that you can go out there and you can go and see the sunrise and sunset and all that stuff. And if you have an opportunity to do it, I would totally do it. So, so that kind of leads me into, again, I want to talk about the surf or the, the Hawaiian trail running culture because it's, and I also saw that you're, <laughs> you're part of hurt, which I guess is the Hawaiian ultra running team. And some yep. of that experience kind of talk to me about like, cause each Island obviously has a little bit of a different feel. Maui is a little bit different than Kauai and Kauai is different than Oahu. And it's, and it's, it, I guess that's the beauty that I love down there is in one particular area, you can have multitudes of all different types of trail runners mm -hmm. and trail, trail experiences and stuff. So Sure. Yeah. So HERT, which stands for Hawaiian Ultra Running Team, is um, probably the, you know, the core of the Hawaii trail running community. Uh, they've been around for several, you know, many decades. And uh, at some point, I believe it was in the early 2000s, they decided to uh, hold the HERT 100 race, which is a, you know, 100 mile trail race that goes up and down the mountains, the Tantalus trails above, just above Honolulu. Um, and so that race became, you know, grew over the years. And, you know, today it's considered one of the, um, you know, hardest, it's sometimes considered one of the hardest uh, hundred milers in the world or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I think that really depends a lot on the, on the conditions because um, on a dry, not so hot day, it, you know, it's actually not that, Awful, especially because they've been doing a lot of trail maintenance and, you know, yeah. taking good care of the trails lately. 
Um, but anyways, that's besides the point. The, the point is uh, the hurt community is really at the, at the center of the entire trail running community and um, the Ohana, the, the family uh, that, you know, um, the hurt family, they put on all these races leading up to hurt. And it's just such a welcoming environment. And, you know, I've made a lot of friends through the hurt Ohana and, um, just over the years, it's been just such a core part of, you know, my, my life here. And, um, you know, I, I think everyone who participates in the race and everyone who volunteers and, you know, puts on the race, they are really committed, right. To seeing every single runner succeed. And, you know, I think there's something special about that and um, all, all, all there's just, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there, but, um, as far as what you were saying about the different islands, it is interesting that really the, I would say that the bulk of the trail running scene is on Oahu and, you know, I, I don't even, I'm not even aware of any, anything on Maui or Kauai, um, on, on the big, on Hawaii Island, on big Island, um, my friend, Alex Barnett, she puts on a bunch of trail races and some road races as well. Um, and so she's been growing the trail scene there and that's been really awesome. And I've participated in several of her races and, um, yeah, so, uh, I think it's burgeoning and I think the, I think people also have to understand that trail running here is very different from trail running, for example, in like San Diego, uh, where everything is just up, up or down and everything is relatively <laughs> technical, um, <laughs> You know, uh, especially, especially on, well, on several of the islands, you know, I, I think on like big Island on parts of Maui, you can find some less steep trails and some more, um, you know, runnable trails, but a lot of Oahu, for example, is just sort of very jungly and rooty. And, um, it, and that's part of the reason why I like to travel to run because I get fed up with running 15 minute, you know, 20 minute mile pace <laughs> so frequently. Uh, I like to be able to run fast. And actually, uh, next weekend, I'm running the Samo 100, the Santa Monica 100. Yeah. So it's a relatively new race, in, you know, in the mountains above Malibu. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 got to be a little frustrating. From I mean, now granted, you're getting a lot of hill training. I mean, so oh yeah, yeah. that's definitely one thing that that uh, you've you've got over some of the other areas is is you're getting a lot of hill training, but not a lot of flat flat level stuff. So I I totally get it. Um, what got you? What got you into into actually just running in general? Because I I know that you were born in South Korea. Like you said, you just came back from visiting your family. So you, you came over here to the States when you were, was it a high school ish in high school? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when I, it's, I was born, um, born a U.S. citizen because my dad actually immigrated to the U S when he was in high school and became a citizen and was educated, you know, here and all of that. So when I was born overseas, I was born a U.S. citizen. And so growing up, I actually, my first language was kind of always English. And I went to international slash American schools overseas. And I mainly grew up in Hong Kong and, and partly Tokyo as well. 
Um, but then in high school, my, you know, my parents were, they knew they were going to move at some point in the middle of my high school, you know, tenure. And so uh, we decided to consider boarding school so, so as not to disrupt, disrupt the continuity of the learning experience. And so um, I ended up going to a boarding school in New Hampshire. And so it was actually at boarding school um, where I really became an athlete. And so that's probably one of the things that I'm, I mean, I'm grateful for many things about my boarding school experience. You know, I, I very much enjoyed it, but I think the the biggest thing that it did regarding my identity was making me into an athlete. And part of that is, or not part of it, all of that comes from the fact that at, at a lot of these boarding schools, uh, sports is, you know, you're required to play sports, even if you don't. Even if you're not an athlete, even if you, even don't, if you don't want, want to. to it's like, it's yeah. yeah. So because of that, I got exposed to things, sports that I would never would have considered. And so, um, you know, I'm a smaller guy. And at the time, the wrestling team needed to fill some lower weight classes. And so I started wrestling. And that was my first um, real experience um, thinking about endurance sports or sort of, you know, thinking about, uh, pushing, pushing my body to its limits. And I realized I was fairly good at pushing my body to its limits. And at the time I was the only sport I had played growing up was, and it was not even very serious. I was, I was really awful at it in middle school, but it was, it was soccer. So I was playing on the JV soccer team. Um, and by junior year, I was still a bench warmer on varsity and so I thought, this is stupid. What, what, you know, I suck at this. And so I quit. But of course, I still had to play a sport. And so my good friend who was on the cross country team, he convinced me, hey, like, you run a lot in soccer. Why don't you join the cross country team? So halfway through my junior year of high school, I switched from playing soccer to running cross country. And I, I won my first race. Um, on the JV, you know, I was on the JV at that time and they immediately realized, oh, damn, he's kind of fast. So then I was on, on the varsity. Then I was on the varsity for the rest of my, my career. So uh, my very short career, I mean, it was like one and one third of a, of one season, you know, of, of a season. I know I didn't do track. So, you know, it's like, I, I've only, I had only run like 10, 5 Ks in my entire high school career. Um, but anyways, that was how I started running. It was through being forced to play sports and being forced to try different things. And, um, I, you know, I think that's part of what I think about, too. Um, you know, we're thinking about starting a family and, you know, I, I want to I, I think it's so important that when we're talking about um, like child development or just youth development, that it's important to have have kids experiment right with different things and, and, and uh, be exposed to a lot. and. I actually feel like I, I, I got that growing up because I lived in so many different places and I was exposed to so many different cultures growing up that I, I think I'm, I'm a little bit more open-minded than, than, you know, other people who only uh, lived in a single state their entire lives. Right. Because, you know, even just, just this past week, going back to Korea and spending 10 days for, for the first time in four years, um, you know, you, you realize, wow, you can, you can do things differently. Like, I, I think I'm very, um, you know, I'm very U.S. centric, 
And I, I forget that there's this whole other <laughs> world out there and all these other countries organizing their societies in completely different ways that, that work really well. Right. And it, there's no one right way. Um, so anyways, I don't know where, how I got to where, I, Oh, we are talking about, <laughs> I go on tangents a lot. So if you're That's looking okay. for I'm, a very okay. uh, focused so conversation, <laughs> um, but yeah, why, why did I get into running? So that, that was that it was through high school. Um, and then when I, when I got to college, I kept running, but, um, wanted to keep sort of pushing, pushing my boundaries, pushing my limits. So, you know, I, I, I started, I did my first marathon, I think, uh, junior year of college or sophomore year of college. I actually did my first, iron, first and only Ironman triathlon, um, as a freshman in college. This is sort of a wild story, but basically, um, for the freshman summer, I had signed up to do a cross country bike trip from new Haven to San Francisco and a friend who was, you know, really focused on triathlons had signed up for the Ironman Wisconsin in September. So right after the, the trip and he was like, you'll be in great shape. Why don't you do, why don't you do the Ironman with me? I, at the time when I signed up, I had never even done a triathlon. I didn't even own a road bike yet at that point. Uh, <laughs> and I, I signed up and the two of us, we were the only teenagers who uh, started the, the race that year. We were the youngest, the youngest wow. uh, racers, but I finished and I finished in under 12 hours, which I thought was a, a feat. And that was, that was it. <laughs> that, <laughs> because, that was, that was yeah. the, the completion of the triathlon career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I've always, I've always just wanted to, uh, push, push the boundaries and test my limits. And so, um, in college I was focused on marathon running and, um, and then once I graduated law school five years later, um, that's when I learned about trail running, you know, sort of after having read born to run and then having started to meet some serious ultra runners who had done, you know, 50 and hundred milers that I thought, oh my gosh, even though I'm only training 30 miles a week it is possible to do, you know, a 50 miler or, or even a hundred miler. And so one of my, one of the biggest role models is Kyle Piatari. He's a, a, you know, an elite runner for ultra. Um, he was a law school, not classmate. He was one year below me, but you know, he is the one who sort of inspired me to pursue ultra running despite leading a very, um, busy career as a, as a lawyer, because he, he was, he showed me that he could do it. He on 30 miles a week did his first hundred miler. And, you know, at all through law school, he had three kids, three very young kids, and he was still racing and doing amazing things. And I realized, oh, wow. Like if Kyle can do all that, maybe I can go out and yeah, do, what's, do what's, a 50 what's miler. My, what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I did my first 50 miler after, you know, being inspired by Kyle to, to give it a shot. And, um, and then it just kept, you know, I kept wanting to try uh, greater I, distances. You know, I always kind of find it interesting uh, when, when somebody is into the road running aspect and, you know, that's kind of their thing and in, in training for it. I mean, you did the New York city, marathon correct that was like your first one yes like, that's a like that's a huge first road marathon to take on right so i mean you're, yeah you're looking at being at the top echelon of road racing at that point in time like and then 
to hear those same people talk about how they got in like their first trail race and how for the most part, it just kind of blew their mind in one way or the other, like whether it's the people, whether it's nature, whether it's the, the style of the event. I, right. I, I love being able to hear the, the, like, Oh my God, I did try trail run. I never, you know, I, I knew exactly what I wanted, what I wanted to be doing as far as like my sport or, you know, doing races or, or run runs and all that stuff. So it's it always quite interests me to, to hear people how their different experiences in trail running has kind of pushed them to want to try more and do more, um, in the trail running community. So what was that first 50 K you did then? So the, Oh, the first 50 miler that I did, I believe, yeah, I believe I went straight to, you know, from marathon to 50 miler. And the reason I picked this one, it's, it was a JFK 50 back in 2014. But the reason I picked that one is that, you know, it was sort of relatively flat, a lot of, a lot of, what is it? The towpath right i forget what that surface is called dirt uh, you know packed dirt right so crushed gravel as close crushed gravel yeah as close to uh, running pavement as as you can get for a trail race um so that was sort of how i picked it and and of course one of the largest um you know one of the larger ultra races with like you know over a thousand um participants so that was my first one. It didn't go super well because I actually sprained my ankle on the AT portion of the trail. Like the, you know, the first, whatever, 10 or 15 miles of the race are on the AT. And um, yeah, I just, at that time was not very nimble, um, right. And very agile. And so um, I, I ended up finishing, but it was just a really painful and not a great experience, but somehow that didn't deter me. <laughs> Was it, um, and I'm going to take a few things from the article here. Cause I thought it was quite interesting. Like from there, cause you talked about doing, uh, there was a mention of 45 different trail runs in 45 days. Did oh that, yeah. Would, did that come? A, was that, did you end up just planning this out coast to coast type of thing and be like, how close was that to like your first 50 mile? I mean, did you do that just right afterwards as far as getting into that? Or did you do that prior to your first 50 mile? No, that was, so that trip was my Wookiee Runs America trip. Basically that was between jobs. Um, I had two months off and I decided that I was gonna, um, my, I guess, passion for trail slash ultra running had just, um, taken off, I guess. And so it was, it was within a year of my first ultra. So I think I did the, uh, the JFK in, uh, 2014 fall 2014 and the running road trip was in summer 2015 after I'd finished my previous job. So what that was about was, um, I mean, that, that, that idea morphed over several months. Originally it was, I want to go on a road trip and see all 50 states, or in other words, see the remaining states that I had not yet been to. Um, you know, I'd been to, at that point, maybe like 25 or 30, 30 of the states, but, you know, there are a whole bunch, the so-called flyover states. Sorry if that's insulting. The so-called flyover states that I just never been to, right? It's like, I've just been on the, the, the seaboards and, you know, um, so... 
that was the original goal. And then I thought, wait a minute, it would be really cool if I got to see as many national parks as possible. And so then I, I became focused on, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll drive in every state, but I'll also visit as many national parks as possible. And I thought, why don't I run in them? <laughs> and so, so that's what it sort of became is a running road trip where every day I would run somewhere spectacular or beautiful. And um, of course, I didn't run in a national park every day because it wasn't feasible to drive, um, you know, uh, every day and run every day. But or sorry, to, to drive to a new national park every single day. Um, but I did hit a lot of really beautiful state parks and, you know, other national monuments and, and other uh, areas that were not formal national parks, but part of the National Park Service, um, you know, um, properties or whatever. So that was a that was still to this day, you know, it's been nine years or eight years since then. And it's still one of the best summers, you know, one of the best experiences of my life I'm just because you know, I, I, I took so many risks with that. Um, I had never camped alone and, you know, I tried as hard as possible not to uh, stay in hotels or Airbnbs or anything like that. I tried to camp every night. Of course I was primarily car camping. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't trekking out into the wilderness and, and camping generally, but even just the act of uh, living out of my car and, and, um, for the whole summer, that was really scary. And then of course, spending all that time alone, this was a solo trip. That was, that was scary to me. I'm a very oh, yeah. social person and I like being around people. And, um, but you know, it, it ended up being such a special, special trip and to be able to see so much of the country and, and especially so much of our uh, amazing national parks and, and to be able to run in them. And yes, that was just such a special thing. And actually, have you seen my, I made a short film based on the trip. It's, uh, oh, is that, um, that's on your Instagram, I assume. Yeah, it's on my YouTube. I'll, I'll, I'll pull yeah. it up, but I actually submitted it to the trail running film festival back in 20, I guess it would be two years later, 2017 maybe. And it was a finalist for best amateur. It's, oh. it's kind of funny because <laughs> the, the, the level and quality of, Trail filmmaking has just, you know, exploded and there's no way that the production quality of my film could even would even be considered <laughs> for selection in a film festival today. Uh, but back in 2017, you know, like it was just a few people. It was like Billy Yang was really popular and, yeah. you know, there, there, are, there are a couple really good filmmakers, but it, it wasn't super prevalent, um, you know, good running or trail running filmmaking. So um, I, this was my first time even making a movie. So I used iMovie and um, I, to call it a movie is even, you know, treating it to you know, uh, whatever. It, it, it's, it's a music video. It's a music video, but I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time on it and it, I think it turned out well. And it was such a amazing feeling to, I went to Seattle to the screening and to see it, you know, to see this little project of mine, you know, broadcast or, or, or screen for this whole uh, room full of uh, trail runners or trail uh, people who are part of the trail running community. It was such a special moment. So it was with James Varner. I don't think he's affiliated with the uh, uh, trail running film festival anymore, but um, I love, I love the TRFF. So 
Yeah. Now are you, I, cause you, I mean, you obviously did the, you put together a small little video for the Haleakala thing. Are you, is that something that you're also interested in as part of like some of your trail running experiences as a, as an amateur, so to speak, or is that something to just, you, you mean putting together videos? Yeah. Like, would you, cause you put together the one that was part of the film festival. You did a small little one that I've seen on your Instagram, a couple of the I've seen on your Instagram. So is that something that interests you as part of your trail experience? as well yeah i think it interests me in general um i'm big into even though i'm an amateur i take a lot of photos i for for me the reason i take photos is i think i have a really terrible memory and you know photos help me capture moments and and you know um there's a there's an app called one second every day have you heard of that app i have yeah I've, I've recorded my life one second every day of my life for, I think I started back in like 2013. So it's been almost a straight decade where I have a one second clip for every day of my life. And it's just such a, you know, if I go back and watch my year recap for 2016, that one second for a given day can bring me back to that day. Right. That's, that's the only trigger that's needed to sort of, um, yeah, to bring back all these memories. And it, it, it's just, I love doing that. And so I take a lot of photos, but I, I think there's something appealing about videos as well as ways to document. And, you know, because basically what it, what a, what a video recap does for me. Uh, and what's interesting is that I primarily do this for myself, but I share it with others. Right. Yeah. But the point is it's a recap that many years down the road, I can, watch it. And if it's a 60 second Instagram clip, uh, video, it really makes me remember like how special of an experience that Haleakala run was. Right. And so, um, I create these little, whatever mementos that I can, um, look back on years later. So that's sort of why I do it. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I bought final cut pro and I took a like free online class on how to use it. But I've just been just kind of, I think I'm, yeah, I still, I need to, I need to find some time to actually um, put those skills to use and, and really give it a shot. So yeah, the video you saw, the Haleakala one, that was just made using the GoPro app, you know, it just it automatically, you know, cuts and splices things. So let's, I want to move into your Colorado Elks Mountain experience. And this is kind of the bulk of the article that I read. Um, because you you went out to Colorado area to go do uh a section of some mountain trails and ended yep. up with a near-death experience out on the in the middle of the in the middle of the mountains. And I kind of yep. wanted to hear your experience with that and how that's kind of propelled you to where you are now both in the trail running space and to where you are professionally because that it seems that that was kind of like that aha moment of holy shit this is now what i want to do this is where i i see myself going because you were you were in a coma for a little spoiler alert you were in a coma for a few days i mean is is there moments where you can go back and kind of recall exactly what was going on right before you passed out or is that something that is still completely this hazy hazy area and and i guess you can 
lead into the story and kind of explain that a little bit, but I, I, I just find it amazing that a, that the, you were able to, they were able to get you out of the mountains so quickly. And I think it was the Aspen, um, medevac or life flight that was able to help out, but, um, kind of explain that a little bit because it's quite an interesting experience. Yeah. So this was back in the summer of 2016 and a, one of my best friends and I, we had set out to do the four pass loop in the Maroon Bells wilderness outside of Aspen, you know, one of the bucket list trails in the United States, uh, r- roughly around a marathon distance with, um, you know, climbing for mountain passes, but not super high altitude, I think around 12, 12 or 13,000. So yes, high altitude, but not extreme altitude. Yeah. Um, but long story short, and I actually have a 10,000 word blog post. I don't know if you had the chance to read it, but if, if not, um, um, so that explains all the nitty gritty, but long story short, uh, I started experiencing altitude sickness, which was fine and normal. You know, I experienced that when I went up to Haleakala, I experienced that when I did yeah. Mauna Kea, that's all fine and normal. I'd experienced that before, but then it got progressively worse and it got to a situation where I realized that things were bad. You know, I was, my head was felt like, you know, it was getting crushed and, um, I started losing my vision. And of course I started losing my coordination and other things like that. But, you know, by that point we were basically at that, the precise halfway point of the entire trail, meaning we were in the Valley between the second and third passes. Mm. And so we made the decision to so-called quit but it still meant we'd have to climb over at least two mountain passes to get out. And that process took too long. And in that period, in that time period, as we're trying to get out, my condition deteriorated super rapidly. And I went, eventually went unconscious. And ironically, we were, I think less than a mile or about a mile from the trailhead on the descent. You know, we had, we had climbed, you know, we were basically, um, just making our way down from the final pass to get back to the trailhead. But I just, you know, I went unconscious and my friend couldn't move me any any further. Uh, And that's when luckily there were three backpackers who were uh, starting their trip, a weekend hiking trip in the opposite direction. And my friend got them to stay with me and take care of my, my body and, and all that while he ran to go get help. And he called the sheriff's office who then called mountain rescue Aspen we then sent out uh, an advanced team. Um, and then, it, you know, it involved 12 to 16 mountain rescue team members eventually, because when the first team doctor arrived and took my vitals, uh, they realized that my condition was critical and that, you know, if I, if I didn't get to the ICU immediately, that I probably wouldn't make it because their original plan was to uh, wait until sunrise and extract me in the morning, you know, um, using like a, my understanding is that they had some sort of uh, wilderness stretcher. That's like a wheelbarrow for humans, right? Like that. I don't know, something like that. Um, maybe, I, maybe I just made that up, but my understanding was they were planning to take me down, you know, by hand. Um, but when they realized that like midnight or 1am that my condition was so dire, they called in a nighttime helicopter evac. And so they picked me up and, uh, thankfully they were able to find a landing spot 
And uh, they picked me up and, and flew me right to Denver because none of the area hospitals had the, you know, equipment or whatever that was necessary um, to, to treat me. So um, I only remember a couple moments. I, you know, I remember sort of fading to black a little bit. And I remember hitting the summit of the or, you know, getting over into the, the, the first pass on the way back. So the second pass on the loop. I remember getting to the summit and sort of um, seeing these other hikers and asking them for Advil and then just like breaking down in front of them because yeah. I was so, um, you know, I sort of had the realization that maybe I might not make it off the mountain. Of course, I didn't expect that, you know, yeah, I just didn't expect what, 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 what ended up happening, which was, you know, ne nearly dying. I thought, yeah. I thought it would just be like more of a, this is an embarrassing incident and Will had to call a rescue and, you know, but I didn't, I didn't anticipate that would also come with nearly dying, but it was, it was a scary, it was really scary is what I remember. And then my next memory is, um, uh, I remember feeling like I was drowning and basically I, I was half conscious at the time, but it was because I was intubated and I was regaining consciousness and, um, I woke up and, you know, with the tube down my throat or whatever, it was, uh, it felt like I was drowning or choking or whatever. And so, um, I actually tried to yank the, <laughs> the, 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 the tube out. And so they put me in hand jail, like they, you know, um, <laughs> these gloves that, you know, prevent you from moving your hands. So, um, that was my next memory, but, um, and then I was drifting in and out of consciousness at that point. And then the next real memory I have was, opening my eyes and seeing my mom's face, like, you know, looking down on me. And I was wondering, why the hell are you here? Where am I? What day is it? And yeah, that, that, that's, that's when I finally regained consciousness. Was it, it ended up being like this rare form of high altitude sickness or something, right? Like a high altitude, was it high altitude cerebral edema? Is that right? Yep. I had, um, high altitude cerebral edema and also pulmonary edema, which is the, the filling of the fluids filling in your lungs. So actually I had one lung was almost completely full with liquid and the other lung was like two thirds full with liquid, uh, which was not, not a good thing, but both HAPE and HACE are, you know, the most common outcome is death for, for both of these, um, illnesses. And, uh, you know, when you hear about people dying on Everest while trying to summit Everest, it's typically because of one of one of those two things. Yeah. Um, and so that was what was sort of unusual about my situation is that I got the really extreme forms of altitude sickness at a relatively speaking low altitude, you know, 12,500. That's, well, that's not. What's, that's what's interesting to me is because we're like, as you said, like you're talking about people getting that on Everest when you're at 30,000 feet, I mean, to get it at 12,000 is very rare. Do they, what do they, do you know what the cause of that was and, and why that started? So at such quote unquote low altitude in, in short, no, there's no, there's no real answer. Like it's a whole bunch of factors that yeah. they said that contributed. There's no single root cause. Um, but, you know, I was living at sea level at the time. I was under a lot of life and work stress when I came out for the trip. I flew directly into Aspen and we only spent two nights 
acclimating, you know, at in Aspen, which is 9,000 feet yeah. or 8,000 feet. Um, you know, and all, all of those, there's no one single thing that contributed. Um, but also, yeah, th- so there, th- this situation is somewhat rare, but it has happened before to other people. And so because of the rarity of my case, uh, my neurologist, who is one of the leading altitude doctors in the country, um, he asked for my permission to use my you know, medical records for a case study or whatever. And uh, so he, he's presented about my case and some similar incidents that have occurred in, in recent years. But um, yeah, it's still a mystery. And but, you know, I think at this point, I've now made a full recovery and am fully comfortable being at altitude. But I still, I, I you know, I'm not itching to get up to super high altitude, but I have done some challenging things at high altitude. So for example, run rabbit run, which is the hundred mile race outside of steamboat Springs. I mean, I think I would say there's like a 50 mile chunk of that race where you're running above 10,000 feet and the race starts at like, you know, 7,000 feet or whatever. So that was a whole 20, you know, 30 hour, almost 30 hour period at relatively high altitude. And I felt the altitude, but I still finished and it, it was fine. And then similarly, Mauna Kea Sita Summit hitting 14,000 feet from sea level, starting at sea level. That was really tough. And the last six miles where you're going from the visitor center at, um, I think it's at 9,000 feet to 14,000 feet in six miles. That was really hard. And I felt the altitude by the end, but thankfully, you know, we had a crew. So that's, that's the difference, right? For Maroon Bells, I had no escape option. Whereas Mauna Kea Sita Summit, we had a crew, we had a van, we had, you know, so if I felt bad, I could immediately, we could cancel things and, and hop in the van and drive back down because that's the only solution. That's the only way to treat altitude sickness is to, you know, lower, go to lower elevation. So because of that, I don't feel as, as worried. Um, And so I'm conscious about not putting myself in exceptionally risky situations now. Um, and I have a Garmin inReach mini that I now carry whenever I do any practically anything now. So yeah. I just bring that around with me. How did um how did that experience like that kind of change your life in in a sense of because I know it, I mean just based on the article it obviously changed your professional you you moved from DC to out to you know, Honolulu eventually and stuff. And like, where does, where does that experience kind of fall as far as where, where you now sit with, with your life? And and what did that kind of teach you about what the, the passions that you now have? Right. And that's, and that's really important to me to hear that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in short, it was the most life-changing moment, you know, it was the most significant life-changing moment of my life. Is that redundant? Life-changing moment of my life. <laughs> it was, it was a life-changing moment. Right. Uh, but basically it, it made me realize the very trite saying that life is short, life is too short. And knowing that I had come so close to death, I realized that I needed to live my life the way I wanted to see it now, not rather than a few years down the line. 
And so I immediately started thinking about how to make a transition into the work that I really wanted to do, which was to be sort of a public interest lawyer slash civil rights lawyer, helping, you know, marginalized and underserved communities and protecting, protecting their constitutional and civil rights. And so um, I started the job search. I started thinking about leaving the DC rat race. Um, and I wanted to move to a, a community and an environment where, you know, there was a better work-life culture. There was better access to the outdoors. Um, and so I created a short list of places that I might consider moving to and included uh, Denver, uh, Seattle, Portland, Oregon, Bay Area, although given the cost of living and that I wanted to be a nonprofit lawyer, that was not my first preference. Uh, and then like the, you know, LA. Um, so I started applying to places all, all in, in these various cities. And uh, around, around that time, as I was searching, I saw a job posting for the ACLU of Hawaii uh, to become a staff attorney. And I thought, why not? It's um, a little bit further west than I was thinking, <laughs> but my parents had just moved back to uh, Korea. And uh, so it'd be closer to them. And I'd been to Hawaii a few times and there are a lot more people who look like me there, here. Uh, and so I thought, why the hell not? And ACLU is my dream, dream organization. So I thought, why the hell not? I'm going to apply. And I applied. I came out here. I brought my then girlfriend to, you know, scope out the place. She had never been to Hawaii. So I, you know, wanted to make sure she was okay with it. And she thought it was okay. And I thought it was great, but thought it was okay to live in because that, that, that was the biggest it's, it's above, right? it's above, uh, Hawaii is above average. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's way above average. It's just, it, but I think, you know, in, in, in all seriousness, um, you know, making the move out to Hawaii is not something that you want to take lightly for a variety of reasons. Like I think there are, there are things that you don't realize about, you know, like really high cost of living, really low depressed salaries. Uh, you're, you know, you're isolated from, a lot of the world, right? It's like the most isolated island chain in the world. So it makes it harder to see family and friends, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, there, there are serious trade-offs, right? Between, um, or, or with choosing to, to come to Hawaii. But anyways, we, 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 we did the calculus and we, we decided it made sense and we made the jump and, you know, I'd spent almost two, two plus decades uh, living in the Northeast corridor. And I, all my connections, networks, friends, family, they're all, they're all, and then they were all in the Northeast at the time. And I was like, okay, goodbye. I'll, I'll, I'll see you later. Um, well, we'll keep in touch on social. Um, so it was very scary. It was very scary. I knew one person in Hawaii. Uh, he was, you know, we went to college together and that was it. And, but it, it's, you know, Five, you know, we're over just five and a half years now down the road. Um, and it was really, really a, a fantastic decision. And we're extremely happy um, to be living here. Uh, we feel very privileged to be living in such a beautiful, beautiful place. Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely two ends of the spectrum for sure. When you're talking about East coast versus Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. I mean, stress levels, everything. And and you're right. I mean, get moving out there. You have to understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, 
from a living situation and stuff. And that's, you know, that's why it's, we've, we've, my wife and I have always kind of looked kind of like toyed with the idea of buying a condo or whatever there. And then you kind of get to the point where you're like, well, it's kind of nice just going out there to visit for a week or 10 days. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely a pull the trigger, but man, that's, that's awesome. And I, I decided to hear that everything's kind of worked out for you with everything in your life and from the uh, experience in Colorado and stuff. But are you now, are you now, are you ever going to go back to the Colorado, the Elks mountain and try and do it again? Probably. Yes. Yeah. I, I think so. It's a matter of timing. You know, it's definitely something that I want to go back and do and do with more, um, a longer, a longer trip. And then, um, you know, more acclimation, more time to acclimate. And, uh, then uh, we want my best friend and I, the same, same best friend, um, we want to go out and do it together. And we, we've talked about it on and off over the years, but, um, we haven't really, um, pulled the trigger. I, I did in 2021, May, 2021, we did a two week sort of post vaccination, uh, travel to Colorado and we did spend a couple nights in Aspen and I did get to see the, you know, Maroon Bells, uh, Maroon Peak, I guess. And that sort of, I was like, I, I want to, I want to make that, I want to do the loop. Of course, not, not going to the summit, um, that I'm not a climber, but, um, yeah, that, that was such a great trip because, you know, I got to spend time at altitude and it was totally fine. You know, we went to Leadville, we, um, I did a ton of different runs while I was there. And, you know, of course, periodically I'd feel some altitude sickness, but it was never, it was never bad. And yeah. so, um, again, that gave me sort of the confidence that I can go back to altitude. Um, but of course I don't, I prefer not to be at altitude. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> like being at altitude generally. I tolerate it. I tolerate it. Right. Like, <laughs> Anyway, I, I'll, I've kept you enough time there, Wookie, but I appreciate you jumping on and, you know, giving your story and kind of talking about the Hawaiian culture and trails out there and stuff. And, you know, if I ever make it out to Honolulu here in the near future, I'll make sure to look you up and maybe go hit a trail or two with you. The Trail Live Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Stoner. Music was provided by The Poor Dirty Astronauts with lyrics written by Matt Meyer. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this episode and the entire Trail Life Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon, or anywhere you find your favorite podcast episodes. Thank you again for listening in, and we'll see you out on the trails real soon.